The following is a message by Dr. R. Scott Clark of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Almighty God, as we come before you this morning, we're grateful for your kindness, mercy, and grace to us in Christ Jesus. We have a shepherd who loves his people, always shepherds them, appears before you on our behalf, and who is preparing a table for us, and indeed feeds us. We pray that you would feed us this morning as we come to your word, work in us by your Holy Spirit, conform us more and more to Christ. Forgive our sins for Jesus' sake. Amen. So I'd like to look for just a few minutes uh, at Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24, where we find, not surprisingly, at least in the first 11, point, 11 uh, verses, three points. And I'll read the first 11 verses from Exodus 24. God's word says, then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and, and uh, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. and We will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Thus far, God's word. Well, this is one of the most fascinating passages in, in all of the Hebrew scriptures and one of the most interesting, certainly in, in uh, the book of Exodus, and in some respects, one of the more difficult passages, which I had forgotten when I volunteered to do this passage. <laughs> I had preached this along many, many years ago, and uh, I thought, oh, I'll, I'll do Exodus 24. And then after I started working on it, I realized why the rest of my colleagues who've gone before me this year in, in Exodus hadn't done this chapter. But we press on anyway. Uh, the, uh, there are other difficulties associated with this besides the, uh, some of the more obvious things. Of course, verses 1 and 2 are 
present some challenges. Uh, all the commentators are essentially divided. Uh, you have one group that says verses 1 and 2 belong to chapter 23, and, and uh, the other group says, no, it belongs to chapter 24, but very few of them tell you what it actually means or the function it plays in the narrative. So I take some comfort in knowing that I'm not alone in my ignorance. And once again, I'm reaffirmed in my conviction that most commentaries are, with a few exceptions, uh, and notable exceptions. Professor Johnson's comes to mind, that's a good commentary. But many of them are not worth the paper on which they're printed, <laughs> since they fail to do the very thing that, that we need them to do, which is help us with the hard passages. Uh, the chapter 24 uh, also illustrates some of the difficulties <coughs> inherent in the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, there are essentially two, maybe three ways of, of relating the Mosaic or the Old Covenant with the New. One is, the, is to say that there's no continuity at all between the Old and New Covenants, um, and that temptation has been taken, that route has been taken by a number of people in the history of the Church. In the early Church, Valentinus and Marcion attempted to set up a complete discontinuity between Moses and Christ, even suggesting that the God of Moses is an inferior God, a demiurge, and not a real God, and not the God of the Bible, and certainly not the God of the New Covenant. And in more modern times, there are aspects of dispensationalism that have had echoes of Marcion, and uh, Adolf and Harnack accused Martin Luther of being the only one after Marcion to understand him. I think that is a, uh, a gross mischaracterization of Luther. But there have been modern uh, Christians, particularly evangelicals, who talk about the God of the Old Covenant, the God of the Exodus, the God of Exodus chapter 24, in ways that Marcion and Valentinus would, would understand. And then there's, of course, there's the temptation of total continuity. And uh, like everything, it, uh, almost all errors that we face happened in the first, uh, either in the apostolic period or the uh, first century in the post-apostolic period. The Ebionites, uh, very early on, proposed uh, a lot, you know, almost total continuity between Moses and Christ, and, and there were others that we read about in the New Testament. And then in our time, there are also people who blur the boundaries between Moses and Christ, those, for example, who would reinstitute the civil laws, even though we confess in Westminster Confession, Chapter 19, that the Old Covenant has been abrogated and those laws have expired. So, the, so there are challenges in, in getting to grips. And, and some of those we face here in this passage. But for the most part, most of the church, most of the time, has proposed both continuity and discontinuity. And in our tradition, we have uh, typically said that Moses is an administration of the covenant of grace. But it is one with a legal quality. It's administration of the covenant of grace, but it is one with a legal quality. And, and we have to get to grips with it, and I think we see that here in this passage. And I think it's particularly important that we understand what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.14 about Moses and about the Old Covenant. And in 2 Corinthians 3, generally, but particularly in verse 14, he identifies Moses with the Old Covenant. And so that's why I call this passage the Old Covenant, because this, this is it. This is where it's formally made. Uh, and so that when we talk about the Old Covenant, we, you know, we typically use it in broad terms, meaning everything that happened before the Incarnation. And that's fair enough, but it's not really how Paul uses that phrase. And I think it would be very helpful if we would use that phrase more consistently the way Paul does and the way, to, and the, way the writer to the Hebrews does. It, it, it refers principally in, in, in the strict sense, in the biblical sense, to Moses. 
and, and we see it uh, worked out here and, and really formally enacted and ratified here, and we'll come back to that in a minute. I think you also see that in Hebrews 8.14, and I think Paul makes that same point in Galatians 3.17. So when, we say, when I say Old Covenant, I'm talking in, a, in the narrow sense now about the covenant that God made with national Israel, as you see here, uh, that uh, is uh, associated with the reading of the law, uh, the shedding of blood and the taking of oaths, and not the and not an oath uh, to rest and receive, although that may be implicit in some ways, uh, but but formally the oath is an oath to do all the words of this law. And there is the reading, of course, as you saw, as you heard, the, of, of the book of the covenant. All right. Well. Uh, Quickly, three, three things to see. Whatever the difficulties in verses 1 and 2 of Exodus 24, uh, we can note a couple of things. And, and, uh, and so the first thing that I want you to see is that uh, the Old Covenant is a legal covenant, it has a, or it has a legal quality. I don't mean to say that it's utterly legal. Because this is, by the way, and we should remember the broader framework, this is after the fall. right? So anyone who says that that God made a covenant whereby, a legal covenant whereby we could keep the law and, and be received into favor with God after the fall, that person is a Pelagian. And the whole Catholic Western Church uh, has said Pelagius was wrong, and indeed uh, uh, he's denounced in formal ecclesiastical documents, including the canons of Dort and the Reformed other Reformed confessions, as a heretic. So uh, no one can say after the fall that there was a covenant of works whereby we could, uh, if we kept the, the law, be received into, into favor. Nevertheless, that law that was first given to Adam, right, in a, in, when, before the fall, when we were able to keep it, that law was repeated. That's uh, broadly taught in the Reformed uh, theologians and arguably, in, again, in Westminster chapter 19. That, of course, that's debated, but... Certainly, this covenant that Moses makes with the people uh, representing the Lord is, does have a legal quality, and we see that in, uh, in verses 1 and 2. But before, even before that, notice that the Lord uh, says to Moses, Yahweh says to Moses, Come up to Yahweh, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders, and worship. But notice the, the quality of the worship. It's just a small note, but I think it's an important note. It says something about God, and I think it also says something about uh, the nature of the Old Covenant. He says worship from afar, worship from a distance. And the more we understand the nature of the Old Covenant, the more we will appreciate the benefits that we have in Christ in the New Covenant. It's, uh, it's interesting that God invites Moses to come forward, come up, come see me, but not too close. A, because God, the God of Exodus chapter 20, is a holy God who who where he dwells makes that a holy place. And more than, a ho more than holy, he's a dangerous God. And he warns us, uh, don't come near the mountain. And if anybody comes near or touches the mountain, they're to be killed. That, and and the, God, uh, the testimony of scripture is that is our God. That's not some demiurge. That's not some strange deity. That is our God. In fact, if we let Hebrews, for example, teach us how to interpret Exodus, we see that in fact, uh, it's not just some vague deity thundering at the top of Sinai. And Exodus chapter 12 tells us that it was the sun who was at the top of Sinai who gave this law, which is, which is of immense importance. 
because it is he who, of course, would come to obey that law. But it is, it is he who gave the law. And, and that's why Marcion was so wrong, and that's why Valentinus was so wrong, and that's why so many modern evangelicals have been so wrong in the way that they have thought about the law. The law is not evil. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is holy, good, and just. It comes, it's an expression, a typological expression, an old covenant expression, but it's, it's an expression of the nature, the holy character of God. And that's why we are to be, that's why they were to worship from afar. They're invited to come, but only so close because he is holy and because they are members of the old covenant. And as members of the old covenant, as citizens of the old covenant, there were certain restrictions that they faced. There were obligations, there were boundaries boundaries from which we in the New Covenant have been freed, and we'll see that in, in a minute. And Moses alone comes near to Yahweh. The others uh, shall not come near. Right? They have to stay. Moses can come a little closer, and certainly the people may not come. Moses comes as a representative. And we see the, the legal quality uh, uh, also in verses 3 and 4, and then if you look at uh, verses 12 through 14, which is outside of our passage, uh, you see the same Thing. Moses, uh, whatever the exact function of this, we can certainly see that Moses came and told the, the people all the words of Yahweh and all the rules, all the commandments, all the judgments. And again, understanding some, there are some difficulties with the narrative, exactly what, what does this mean, swearing this oath here now and then why again, I can't. I haven't yet figured that out, but I can tell you that the people respond to the reading of the law by taking an oath. We will do right, all the words that Yahweh has spoken. And by the way, they regard this disclosure from Moses to them, not as Moses' word, not as some errant word, but as the holy word of Yahweh. Evidently, the people of Israel uh, did, thought, thought that God is competent and able to accommodate himself to us and express himself in a way that's true and reliable and even, dare we say it, inerrant, such that they're willing to stake their lives on this revelation from God through Moses, a human being, a, a human being whom we know to be sinful and fallible. How do we know? He wasn't allowed to enter into the promised land, and yet he is an apt vehicle, a competent vehicle used by God to reveal his word. The people of, of God rightly responded to the word. It's an appropriate response, but it's an awesome oath. We will do all the words of this law. Now, we don't know exactly what was contained in it, but whatever it was, we have some reflection of it in the 613 commandments. Whether that's exactly what's denoted here, I don't think it matters. Whatever it was that was given, that's what they obligated themselves to. And they didn't say, we will try. I think that's really, really important. They said, we will do. I'm sorry, but I don't know how else to describe that in, in, in the categories that we have, and maybe our tradition's entirely wrong, but in the categories that we have from our tradition, from our reading of scripture, we call that a covenant of works. This is a condition, this is the law, we will do. I, I, I know that other people are listening to this who are not here with us this morning, and I know that that might be a little unfamiliar to some people who are listening to this, but historically, our theologians have described this kind of language and, in fact, this kind of an event as a covenant of works. They're promising not to try. They're promising to do. That's, they took a serious obligation. And then things, so clearly there's a legal character. Secondly, 
the old covenant is bloody. Right? And we can see that in, uh, in, in the second half of verse 4 and, and, and through verse 9. And so what does Moses do? He, he writes down all the words of Yahweh. He gets up early in the morning, builds an altar at the foot of the mountain, 12 pillars, of course, representing the, the 12 tribes. There are, uh, there are uh, uh, peace offerings and uh, burnt offerings of oxen before the Lord. So this is a, a cultic, this is a religious observance, right? Not just a legal observance, it's a religious observance. This is, uh, this is Old Testament, in the strict sense, religion. And what does Moses do? He takes half the blood and he puts it in basins, and the other half he throws against the altar. Well, what's happening here? Well, what is the altar? Uh, the altar is a, a representation of the presence of the Lord, and it's it is, as it were, baptized in blood, and that there's more bloodshed to come. And then, uh, and I could have mentioned this in the earlier point, then he took the book of the covenant, again, we don't know exactly what that is, and he read it in the hearing of the people, presumably there's some relation to what we read earlier in the chapter. And how do the people respond? And again, uh, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do, we will obey. Now, uh, now they've entered into a blood covenant. And of course, this here, plug in everything you know about ancient Near Eastern covenants, right? Walking between the pieces, the cutting up of, of animals. Uh, that's, that's what's going on here, right? These are serious promises, and these are promises that are sealed in blood. And to make sure that this is clear, uh, notice what uh, Moses did. This is one of the most extraordinary worship services that anyone's ever endured. I dare say that if you did this in your congregation, and I'm not saying you should, but should you do this in your congregation, I think at least the first three rows would never come back. <laughs> he takes the blood, right, the other half, and he throws it on the people. And he says the most remarkable thing, behold, and maybe in some ways not remarkable, behold the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. Blood is death. Blood is judgment. Blood means this is life and death. You have to do this. You're, you're under blood to do this. Right? Do you remember as kids? I don't know if you did this. I don't know if anybody does this anymore. Probably you have to sign a waiver if kids, if you, kids are out playing. They probably have to sign waivers before they go if they put on their safety helmets. When, when we were kids, we didn't wear helmets, and we even carried pen knives, and sometimes we might even cut our hands and Right? And, and, and put our hands together and swear blood oaths right? before the, some federal agency made that illegal and liable to lawsuits. But we used to do those things because people weren't watching us all the time. There weren't any cameras or cell phones or anything. We were out by ourselves. So we, we knew as children that there's such things as blood oaths, right? that the shedding of blood means something's really serious. And of course, we know here that something very serious is, is going on. And, and yet we know the history of Israel, and this time is getting away, but we know the history of Israel. How did it go? Did they do all the words of this law? Did they obey all the words of this law? Did they love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? Did they love their neighbor as themselves? No. They murdered. They committed idolatry. They committed adultery. They coveted. They lied. They stole. They've 
failed to do the most basic things, the circumcise themselves on the eighth day, such that it had to be redone, such that a bunch of them had to do it at Gilgal at an inopportune time. And ultimately, that's the basis on which, the legal basis on which, the Lord ultimately expelled them from the land. And you see the end of the history of Israel after the expulsion and, and even the return. The glory is gone. Uh, it's all over. The relationship is broken. Yeah, we're back, but Yahweh's not here and it's, the chemistry's gone. It's just not what it was. And now we're in the period really of just waiting in the in-between time. Waiting for hundreds of years for something new to happen. And yet, Underneath all of this, and in the midst of all of this, there is something else. And that is that the Old Covenant is also gracious. Because it, were it strictly legal, right, they would never have gotten this far because they broke the covenant before they ever got to this point. So it wasn't strictly legal. It was never strictly legal. If it was strictly legal, they would have never gotten into the promised land in the first place. They would not have gotten anywhere. And, and you see that here, in, and again, in the most wonderful way in verses 9 and, through 11. So Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders, they go up, apparently again, assuming this is some, there's some chronological order here. And what, what happens? They see the God of Israel. How were they able to see the God of Israel? Now, remember in verses 1 and 2 they were at a distance, but now they see the God of Israel. Why do they see the God of Israel? Because the mediator has come down from the mountain, he's spoken the word of God, he's shed blood, and now the mediator has gone back up the mountain, and with him all the people of God, and they're able to see God. Does that remind you of anyone? It's meant to. It's meant to be a giant picture of, if you will, and I understand there are problems with this expression, another Moses, a greater than Moses. Not a second Moses in the sense in which Rome treats him as a second Moses, but the one for whom Moses worked, the one who gave the law that Moses brought down, the one who didn't just shed ox's blood, but shed his own blood who not only said, we will do all the words of this law, we will obey, but he did it. And he did it for Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 and all of those disobedient folk at the bottom of the mountain who were not even eligible to touch the smoking mountain because they were unholy. And as a consequence of his shedding of the blood and the pouring of it on not an altar with 12 pillars but an altar made of a couple of pieces of rough wood on that basis we the book of Hebrews says have access to a priest unlike Aaron a priest who has the power of an indestructible life who made a once for all sacrifice and we have access to the living God. We are members of the new covenant now. And God no longer says to us, stay at a distance. Now he says to us, you have been led into, not only to touch the mountain, 
but to go up the mountain. And not only up the mountain, but into the holy of holies. The most holy place. And not in Moses, but in Jesus. So that when we see Christ by faith in his word, we've seen the face of God. So we are not old covenant Christians, uh, but we are new covenant Christians. But we are great beneficiaries of this picture. As we go out this morning, I hope we'll appreciate what's been accomplished for us. And that from which, in a sense, we've been delivered. And the freedom that we have, and the access that we have, and the grace that we have, and the love that we have. from God who loved us in Jesus Christ and fulfilled all of these pictures, who was gracious to them, but how much more gracious has he been to us? Let's give thanks. Father, we are grateful this morning that we do have access to Jesus, the high, uh, to the Holy of Holies, through Jesus, our high priest, and that he has not only spoken to us from the mountain, but he has come down and obeyed all the words of the law for us and taken us, as it were, on his back, all of the tribes of the Israel of God in Christ, not in pillars, but on his forehead, as it were, on his shoulders. And we are in the Holy of Holies, and we have access to the glories of heaven. We have pictures of it in the Revelation, and one day we will see things more clearly and more fully and more gloriously. We look forward to that. We're thankful for these pictures, but we're more thankful for the reality. And we look forward to the consummation. Grant us grace to live our lives in, in light of these realities. For Jesus' sake, amen. Copyright 2013, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.